Hey there listeners, welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who aren't quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Ashvin, I'm on the phone with Brian, and on today's episode we're going to continue our sequel September month and review A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, directed by Jack Shoulder, written by David Chaskin, and starring Mark Patton, Kim Myers, and Robert England. In this sequel, a teenager is haunted in his dreams and then in real life by Freddy Krueger after he moves into the home uh, that had a haunted past. For those of you who are new to the show, Brian and I are going to first have a spoiler-free discussion on the background of the film, then we'll take a short break, you'll hear some music, and then we'll dive into the plot, hit some spoilers, and give our review. Brian, you're no stranger to the franchise. You've done a whole re- a review on every ep- or every movie in this franchise. Um, yep. So yeah, I, I, is it safe to say you're a huge fan of Nightmare on Elm Street? I'm a huge fan of the franchise, even though some of the movies, it's one of those things where I think Friday the 13th fans feel this way too. You can see the flaws and you know they're not perfect movies, but you love them nonetheless. Got it. Yeah. Some of them are wonderful and most of them are just good, but lovable. Yeah. That's great. I mean, it kind of shows like a self-awareness that like you can love it, but like kind of admit its flaws uh, throughout the series, right? Yeah. And if we're going to start this show off by saying where each one of us stands with the franchise, we got to remind everyone how much you disliked the original (laughs) Nightmare on Elm Street. Ashman disliked the original Nightmare on Elm Street. I did, I did, and it's funny because I, I went back and I listened to our episode on the original one, and man, I was trying to dig at you on like the, the last twenty minutes. I feel like of that episode uh, was me just trying to tear it down, and you kind of defending it. So it, it was really fun to kind of re-listen to all that stuff. Um, you were really like trying to find a gap in my armor on that one. <laughs> yeah, and you weren't you weren't letting up at all. It was impressive. No, but I was kind of getting flustered. You could tell. I could tell. I wasn't yeah. prepared for such. <laughs> trashing of the sh- the movie i, know, I didn't I think... know how to defend it because i never thought i would have to <laughs> yeah i could feel like you're losing losing your patience a little bit on some of that <laughs> but you know t- t- I, i've always wondered your love for this franchise uh i think ties back i i know you watched the whole franchise uh in almost like one night right yeah the so what ashwin's talking about when he says i reviewed every movie i did a long patreon episode which was just a quick review of every movie in the franchise because when my second son was born he wouldn't sleep unless someone was holding him so my wife and I took shifts sitting in a rocking chair holding him in the night and when you have a baby you don't want to fall asleep with them in your arms because you know bad things can happen so I stayed up and I streamed all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies probably in the course of like two or three nights from like 3 a.m to 7 a.m wow and it was kind of a a special moment for me and my son, even though he had no awareness of what was happening. It was just kind of like our first quality time. Yeah. Uh, So it's got a special place in my heart. Yeah. If you had streamed the Transformers movies from beginning to end during that time, would you have the same affection for it potentially? Here we go, folks. He's got his little uh, fencing sword out, and he's looking for gaps in the armor already. Uh, no, sir. Part of why it's so it was so special to me was it's just so imaginative, especially as the franchise go goes on. People mm-hmm. might say it gets worse, but it gets even more imaginative, and it's just the kind of stuff I'm excited to share with my kids, like mm-hmm. imagination and creativity and worlds where 
weird things can happen and fiction in general and Transformers wouldn't have wouldn't have done that for me. I don't know, man. You're talking about like worlds, imagination. I, I think that is Transformers, uh, where, where you have all that stuff going on. So before you saw it, that like on those like two or three nights, this was already like it held a special place in your heart before that, right? Well, I had never really seen much of the franchise, but I did really enjoy the first film, which I had seen. Oh, okay, okay. And I think I had seen this one too, but it didn't. I didn't really remember it very well. Okay. Okay. So you already had a, uh, you liked the first one going into it and then you watched the rest and then uh, it was a special moment and you felt like the rest of the franchise also kind of delivered on what you're looking for in that instance. <laughs> yeah. And I don't have a chip on my shoulder about fedoras like you do. All right. Yeah. That's, that's the next point of <laughs> contact. Uh, th- next topic here, the fedora, which I, I know became a hot topic and I, I think I got a lot of heat for this. You know, the fedora, it's it's not just the fedora, you know, I mean, uh, I, I think I am jealous that he wears one and I don't feel like I've ever been able to wear one and like feel as confident as Freddie does wearing it. Have you had that experience? I've never even tried. I'm, I'm like a bald guy, so I feel like I'd be more likely to pull off a fedora, but it's just in this day and age, the fedora is... It's almost like a parody of itself. Right? <laughs> like, you can't wear it with like a serious face, right? No, no. You got to have a really burned face to wear it. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Horribly burned. So yeah. did this bullet point on your notes just say, fuck fedoras, discuss? <laughs> Very close. It says the hat. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that the bigger thing here than the fedora, I, I want to talk about like his whole outfit because he's got like a, a pretty decent sweater on, which like some nice stripes. And this one we even see like he wears like some decent shoes as well. Um, and, and when you compare him to like Jason or, um, Mike, Michael in, in, in Halloween, like their outfits are so like utilitarian and you kind of know like why Jason has a mask is because he found it in that one movie or why Michael's like wearing that outfit. It's because he like kind of hijacked a guy or something or killed uh, some truck driver or something. But there's literally no explanation for this guy's outfit in these first and second movies. So that just doesn't like make you wonder, like, why is he wearing a hat and that sweater and those dress shoes and the glove? Um, boy, I think Wes Craven modeled his appearance, his dress after a dude that walked down his street when he was a kid that creeped him out. Oh. And I think he also read somewhere that red and green was the harshest color combination to the human eye. So he made this sweater, red and green stripes. It's like a dark red and a dark green. Interesting. Um, that, that I mean, like, what about Christmas? That's like red and green. So you're saying those colors are the, are the harshest, potentially? Right. I, yeah, that, that doesn't add up to me. I heard him say that on the documentary Never Sleep Again, I believe, is where I heard that. But yeah, I think Christmas colors go pretty well together. Yeah, yeah. They Maybe it's work. just so we're so conditioned to think of that as Christmas. Right, right. <laughs> then now it's kind of taken on a new meaning. Yeah. Uh, all right. So yeah, yeah. Moving past the outfit... Part two, uh, dreams. What is that famous quote about, like, dreams aren't interesting unless you're in them or someone's naked? Have have you heard this? No, I've never heard this quote. Oh, like, you know, whenever someone's like, oh, I had this dream last night, uh, I thought, like, it's common that, like, oh, I'm not going to be interested in this unless I'm in that dream or it's like there's some, like, nudity or, like, there's someone having sex in this dream. Uh, Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and so I, I thought that that kind of applies to the scares in, in like the topic of uh, Friday, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, where it's dreams, and are dreams that scary if they're not happening in real life, and no one's naked and you're not in them? Well, 
he is in the dreams and the people he knows are in the dreams and there is nudity in his dreams. Which, which, were you talking about part one? Uh, part two here. Oh, there the was... movie we're reviewing tonight. Oh. After we've gotten, <laughs> once we finish discussing clothes. <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah. I, 10 I, I minutes get... in. Yeah, I guess you're right. Okay, okay. There's some nudity in this one. Okay, so so this does hit all the uh, aspects of a dream being interesting then. Yeah. Okay. And th- not to spoil things, well, I think it's fair to... This doesn't really spoil anything. It's the premise of the movie. This is kind of a possession movie. Freddy's goal is to possess Jesse so that he doesn't have to attack people in their dreams. He can come into the real world through Jesse's body. Yeah, that is, that is really interesting twist from the first one where instead of just killing people in dreams, Freddy's actually like trying to come out into the real world. Um, do you feel like that is like off brand or because we only have one film, it's allowable since like brand hasn't been established? Yeah, that's a good question and a topic that is discussed in the Never Sleep Again documentary. Mm-hmm. I think it's allowable and I think it was an interesting place to take the franchise, but a lot of people weren't comfortable with it. Wes Craven chiefly among them because it violated the rules of the original film. And I think Robert England, while he was open to some of it, there were certain things that he felt were too far from the original and the rules set forth in the original. And he felt like his heart wasn't quite in the scenes that really broke the rules. The pool party scene. Specifically, <laughs> the pool party scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of noise about that, and I saw some of those comments. I was wondering if they made those comments at the time, or if that's like looking back uh, at the franchise as a whole, and like maybe at the time people thought like this was the coolest idea ever. Like, let's change the approach. Let's have it be at a pool party and all that stuff. Like, I, I feel like they thought it was a shit when this came out. Maybe. I think everyone involved in the movie, or at least most of the people involved in the movie, were like what are we doing with this pool scene? And they yeah. were all a little hesitant about it. Okay, okay. Yeah, and to, and to your point, I think that's really interesting that Wes Craven kind of turned down this one because he didn't like the script. So yeah, the, you have the original director not kind of coming back. Um, and then the Yeah, guy, he even cited the pool scene as a specific aspect which he really didn't like about the script. Yeah, and that surprises me because I, I think if you're trying to you know do a sequel and you've written a script and you're trying to get that director back and they're not on board with something aren't you more willing to change the script and keep the director versus say, okay, we're, we're, we're going to stick to this and just get find someone else who will direct it? You would think, but it seems like Robert Shea and the rest of the folks at New Line, Robert Shea's a producer on all these movies, were pretty attached to the script and they didn't want to change it and they were like, all right, well, screw it. I don't think yeah. they realized how much they, how important Wes Craven was Mm-hmm. And how important Robert England was because at first they cast an extra to play Freddy Krueger in this one and they were going to do a rubber mask. Right. And then it didn't take them long to realize how important Robert England was to who to Freddy Krueger. Um, right. And anyone who's seen the remake might have an opinion on that too. Um, oh, is he not in the remake? He's not in the remake. It's played by uh, a dude with a long three-word name who I can never remember, but he played Rorschach in The Watchmen. Oh, okay, cool. Like God, I can never think of that guy's name. But he, he did a good job, but it's just not Robert England. Yeah, yeah. So all this to say, I think New Line was just kind of attached to the script. They were like, we own the franchise. We're going to do what we want here. Right, right. Eventually, they they brought 
Robert England back on, but they didn't feel the need for... I mean, they wanted West, but once he turned it down, that was that. They weren't going to change the script for him. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, it seems like they're pretty committed to the script. And even the director they did bring on, uh, this Jack Shoulder guy, it sounds like he never even wanted to do horror films in the first place, and he kind of just saw this as an opportunity to make a name for himself in the industry. I think this is only his second film? Um, I think... Yeah, I think maybe it was his second. He also did films, I can't remember if they were before or after, called The Hidden and Alone in the Dark. I know Alone in the Dark was before this. Right. Yeah, I think... Um, mm-hmm. Those both have decent reviews. I know, Alone in the Dark looks kind of cool, actually. And it, yeah, pretty, pretty solid reviews. Uh, I think that was like his first like big film, and then this one came after that. Yeah, and he said after this movie he had a ton of horror scripts come across his desk, but he said he didn't want to do another horror film. Right, right. Until he eventually did Wishmaster 2, so. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any of the he, Wishmasters? He came around. I've never, I might have seen a little bit of Wishmaster as a kid. Huh, I don't think I've ever touched that franchise. Well, maybe we'll have to check it out. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, going, going back to what you are saying about New Line, um, I think, I got the impression that they might have been close to, like, uh, going out of business or something before this film came out. Like, they had a lot writing on this film and the success of it. Yeah, they really did. I think even though the original did really well for them, it sounded like they weren't really swimming in cash after it. Like they needed this one to be a success too until to make themselves comfortable. Right, right. Um, and they were pleased with this one. This one had a budget of th- $3 million and had a box office of $30 million, but that was about twice what they expected it to do. Oh, really? Their expectations are pretty low. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's still, that's 10 times its its budget, so. I'm surprised, though, because the first one made $57 million, so you're doing the second one, uh, like, almost less than a year after the release of the first one, and your expectations are that low? Yeah, I think they said they're expect. Wait, did it really do $57 million the first one? I think so. I think it did $57 million on a budget of $1.1 million. So, like, okay. huge success. And then this one, yeah, you're right, still a success 10 times uh, what, what they spent on it. But uh, I don't know. I, 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 would, I would have thought they would have, like, been expecting more, um, especially doing it so soon after the first one. Yeah, maybe it was... Um... It's hard with these documentaries too because they say thing they say everything like it's a fact, but it's based on their memory of something that happened thirty years ago. So yeah, but there was a quote from Jack Shoulder in Never Sleep Again that he said they were hoping for like seventy percent of the first box box office return and they got one hundred and fifty percent. But oh, interesting. Um, that can't be quite right though because that's not one hundred and fifty percent. Maybe that's thirty million is a U.S. number. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They did say it did really well in foreign markets. Oh, and, oh yeah, right, right. That's a good point. Yeah, specifically in Europe. Yeah, the European audience love this, and I, I think that brings us to one of the hottest uh, items around this movie, um, which I, I think we can talk about more when we get to the plot, but it does have uh, a reputation of yeah hitting on some early kind of uh, homophobic, or not homophobic, but like homosexual vibes, right? Yeah, yeah, it's very, like, kind of, like, homoerotic and perhaps homophobic. Like, David Chaskin has said he kind of thought of it as a homophobic movie, and Mm -hmm. it's got a whole complicated past with this. Mark Patton, the star who plays Jesse, is gay, and depending on who you talk to, he was out 
at the time of this movie or he was closeted at the time of this movie. They've, they've all said different things in different documentaries, but he was very bitter about this movie. He thought it ruined his career. Um, and in one way or another, it, it did, whether he played a role in that or not. Right. And then in 2019, there was a documentary released called Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street about Mark's experience with this movie. Mm-hmm. And he kind of felt like everyone on the set knew this was a gay movie and they were kind of throwing him to the wolves, making him even like, you know, making him seem like pigeonholed into playing a gay or effeminate character so that he could never get a role playing straight in Hollywood again. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and then is- he kind of dropped off. He, yep. It, I think it was a combination of his agent saying, hey, we can't do straight roles for you anymore. Like, right. that's over. Um, yeah. Because he screams like a girl in this movie, quote, like a girl. Sorry to say that, but that's how everyone perceived it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't considered a very masculine performance, and he was essentially kind of in a final girl role. So he, if you look at his IMDb credits, he shows up in a couple other things after this movie from 1986, possibly that it was already kind of contracted for filming, and then there's nothing there for 30 years. Yeah, I think he became like an interior designer, potentially. He Uh, did, and he moved to Mexico. Right, and okay. they had to f- hire a private eye to find him for the Never Sleep Again documentary in 2010. Oh my God, have you seen that documentary? I have, or most of it, most of it, Is maybe it about half of it. It's a long, long documentary. Interesting, and it's all about him. Uh, well, Never Sleep Again. There are two documentaries. Never Sleep Again is all about the franchise, and Scream Queen is all about this specific movie. Okay, and Mark's experience on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that sounds tra- traumatic for him. So yeah, I really feel for him. Um, and yeah, this I think was his only third film. And he'd already done a film, I think, where he was playing a transgender person, which I'm sure for the early 80s, late 70s was um, already like kind of a pretty like a hot topic. Um, so yeah, that, that was a hard time to portray these roles, I guess, in Hollywood. So pro- yeah, and I image. think there was a period, I don't know for sure, but I think there was a period where it was like, easier and things were starting to get like kind of open and free and we were on the like tail end of the 70s but then once the AIDS epidemic hit there was Mm -hmm. a lot more homophobia and a lot more pressure to be closeted Um, and I think maybe some of that happened kind of between that movie he was in called Come Back to the Five and Dime Jimmy Dean and A Nightmare but I'm not totally sure right Um, Or at least it happened between that and when Nightmare was on VHS. Sure. That makes sense. But yeah, he played a transgender, and then the the person who played him as a woman was Karen Black, who played Mother Firefly in the House of a Thousand Corpses. Oh, wow. Cher was also in that movie, and it was directed by Robert Altman. And come back to the five and dime? Yeah, yep. So it was really like an up-and-coming thing for Mark Patton. He was, And then this movie was... Even though it only made $30 million, it was still number 48 at the box office, which wasn't amazing, but he was kind mm-hmm. of a movie star at this point. Right, right, but kind of pigeonholed in a way. Right. Yeah, yeah, that, that's tough. And um, a lot of the controversy with, with Chaskin and, and the writing, like, and, and the people pointing um, you know, fingers at like, you know, where that subtext might have come in from or where, where that happened, um, it, it doesn't seem like until 2010 that Chaskin admitted to, you know, having the scripts uh, lean into that element, 
Which, that's so weird that, like, he would wait that long to admit that, isn't it? It is really weird. He he seems like a little bit, and this is just my opinion, he seems like a bit of a strange guy. Um, and my other opinion, these are maybe hot takes, and, and maybe just how they came out in a doc, the documentaries. And documentaries aren't always a reliable source of truth. Like, you can portray things a different way. But Jack Schuller kind of seems like a dick. David Chaskin... <laughs> Kind of did too, but at least he ended up apologizing to Mark by the end of the Scream Queen documentary. Sure, trying but to. But yeah, like, for years uh, he denied that there was any gay subtext, and then in 2010 he admitted it and he thought it would be, he was kind of captivated by what it would be like to be gay in the 80s um, with AIDS and everything like that. And Freddie was kind of a metaphor for some other side of you that you don't know how to deal with an emerging sexuality. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I think watching it with that lens, uh, you can kind of pick up on that. Um, but I, I feel like the studio and probably Jack's shoulder still maybe deny that or, or think it's like coincidental. Um, but what, what do you, I, mean, I don't know, maybe we could talk about this uh, after we review the plot. But um, do, you, do you have an opinion on it? You know, when I was watching... Some of the documentaries and Jack Shoulder just kept saying, because he says to this day, like, I never saw it. I had no idea. I was clueless. I did right. not realize there was any gay subtext. And the whole time I was watching these documentaries, I was like, bullshit. <laughs> but then when I watched the movie this time, yes, it is very gay. Like you, And we'll go through some of the things that, that sure. make it seem so. But All I right. could totally see how you would miss it. Um, yeah. So I, I, I do believe him. And he doesn't seem like a real people person. So I could, he seems like the type of guy who this would just not even be on his radar. <laughs> and I'm sure that there are right. listeners too who have seen this movie and this may be the first time they're even hearing that, this, that there was right. a gay subtext. You, it's not spelled out, but mm-hmm. if you start looking for it, then you're like, oh, yep. Exactly. Yeah, right. Uh, th- that's the thing. I can kind of see both sides of it. And yeah, I'm not sure if I've got like a clear opinion on it either. But uh, yeah, we'll talk about it as we go through the plot and maybe come back to this point and argue it out if we think it was intentional or not. Yeah, yeah. And this movie, um, it got a lot of, even though it did well at the box office, it got very mixed reviews. The Rotten Tomatoes score is 41% critics, 33% users. And if <laughs> Do you do some digging online? You can hear a lot of hate speech about this movie and the F word is mentioned and there's a lot of homophobia regarding this movie. Oh, you think a lot of the, the flack it got is due to that? Yeah. Yep. And I mean, now, and Mark Patton says this himself in the Scream Queen documentary, now if you Google it, most of the things that come up are kind of the queer community like owning this movie and it right. being kind of praised for what it is. But, you know, had you looked it up five or 10 years ago, it might've been more like sure gay slurs and hate for it and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the eighties, like when you're talking about like the AIDS kind of stuff too. That's yeah. Happening. Um, yeah. Very, very interesting how, the, how this one has fared over time. For sure. Yeah. It's kind of been reclaimed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's telling of like kind of our, our cultural evolution as well. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, any other background you want to get into? Um, you know, there was some interesting stuff, but we're at 25 minutes, which is a little long for this segment of the show. So let's roll into the Ohio connection if you're cool with that. 
Yeah, let's let's hear it. Okay. Alex is back for our Ohio connection. He connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. He also owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. So if you're in the area, get your butt over there, get some pierogi, sit on their patio while the weather's nice and have a beer. And Alex says, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, is a 1985 supernatural slasher film directed by Jack Shoulder and based on characters developed by Ohio native Wes Craven. The film's soundtrack soundtrack and closing credits feature the song Have You Ever Seen a Dream Walking, performed by Bing Crosby. Crosby was a popular actor and singer who gained worldwide fame in the mid-20th century. For many, he is best remembered in the holiday classic White Christmas, although film buffs will remember The Road to film series he starred in throughout the 1940s and 50s alongside comedian Bob Hope and Dorothy L'Amour. These comedy adventure films included most notably Road to Rio, Road to Singapore, and Road to Hong Kong. Bob Hope was raised in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> what a route. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought he would have gone with, uh, I think Elm Street is supposed to be in Ohio, right? It is, yeah, in Springdale, Ohio, or Springwood, Ohio, I think. But Sure. I think maybe he already went with that in the last one. I can't remember. Oh, okay, okay. And Wes Craven's from Ohio. There's a lot of things to go on, but I think he's touched on all of them in prior connections. So Yeah, he never likes to go with the low-hanging fruit. Yeah, he took the long road to the Ohio yeah. connection. <laughs> nice. <laughs> awesome. Nice, nice find there, Bob Hope. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Welcome back. Yeah, nice job. Um, cool. Well, anything else there? Should we dive into the plots, uh, hit the spoilers, and get into our review? Let's move on to the plot. Okay, cool. Hey, uh, before we do that, though, do you mind if we take a quick break? I, ju- I just heard a loud noise. I need to go check out what it was. You always have to check out loud noises in life, so go for it. All right, thanks. I'll be right back. Hey, man, sorry about that. I'm, I'm back. Yeah, is everything okay? Uh, yeah, I, I guess our dog just randomly uh, exploded and, and uh, <laughs> uh, kind of uh, just combusted. Uh, I think, we, we think it's the dog food that we were giving her, so I guess that that's on us. This time. Yeah, man, I mean, that's been known to happen. You get that wrong food in their system and boom. I know. The, the one that like, says flammable on it, I guess you're not supposed to feed them that one. <laughs> it's, it's dangerous. Oh man, that <laughs> that scene that, is quite something. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. There's there's a lot in this movie that's uh, quite something. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. I have a feeling this is going to be a long episode. It's long already. All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so this movie kicks off. Uh, I think I think with a decent sequence. We we have our main character Jesse, who's on a school bus that's dropping these kids off, and everything's going fine. Until he notices that the bus is like driving pretty fast and they're going off road and the windows are locked and um, it's revealed that the driver is actually Freddy and they go into like this desert land where the ground kind of gives away and Freddy gets up and kind of walks towards the riders taunting them with his uh, finger claws or whatever. Um, What did you think of this opening? I didn't love it, didn't hate it. Interesting. I... I actually thought it was kind of like on brand with the first one. Like this, this feels like right where the first one picks off with them driving off in that car, like being possessed by Freddy or whatever. 
this this kind of felt like it was consistent, like in the in the the tone and everything. Yeah, I suppose it was. I guess I just didn't really find it very scary, but I didn't hate it. Yeah, was it not scary because it was daytime, and he was wearing a fedora? I mean, it was just kind of out there too. The bus was on this spire in a desert hellscape. It was just pretty out there. Yeah, yeah. The the, the CG. I, I think that was CGI, right? Yeah, actually, no. I would guess it was probably miniatures. Oh, okay, maybe a okay. combination of like miniatures and matte paintings and some animation. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, it didn't look great. Uh, I'll, I'll give you that. But um, I, I, I thought, for, I, I, yeah, I, to me, it just kind of felt like a, a con- continuation of like where the first one ended. And I thought Freddy actually looked pretty okay here um, in like his acting. It wasn't like too silly or anything in like how he presented himself. Yeah, yeah, he looks good. And Kevin Yeager did his makeup on this one, and he is most notice- notable for designing Chucky. Oh, cool. Yeah, wow. he had to pick up where the last guy left off. I can't remember the name of the last guy, but um Okay. So it was some trouble for him to get it right, but I think he did pretty well. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Um so then uh Jesse wakes up from this nightmare that he's just been having and um I, I think they make a joke here where he wakes he's been waking up every morning screaming and his younger sister's like, Why does why can't Jesse wake up like a normal person? So we <laughs> learned that <laughs> did did you like that? Yeah, yeah. That's that's a good like first dig at him. I, I like that too. <laughs> uh, we learned that his family has just moved into this house that Nancy used to live in in the first one, and we get the impression that he's been waking up every day screaming. Uh, so he's been having these recurring nightmares of Freddy, but unlike the first one, it doesn't sound like someone's like dying every time, right? Yeah, he's just yeah, he's more like taunting Jesse yeah. in his dreams. Right, right. And Jesse, for some reason, sleeps every night in tidy whities uh, and wakes up like sweating. Did you notice there was a moment where we cut from his bulge in tidy whities to two eggs frying in a skillet that look <laughs> quite a bit like balls would in a sack? Oh, I don't think I tied that together, but holy shit, that's hilarious. The uh, I think there's a perfect storm that made the subtext, the gay subtext, stand out more Mark Patton being gay and the production designer on this movie was yeah. gay and it seems like some people in the movie got it that this was gay subtext and some didn't the production yeah. diner, designer seems to be somebody who got it because he snuck in quite a lot of stuff that uh, oh my god yeah yeah I, I, I miss that. that that's hilarious yeah and you never know how much you're just like reading into stuff that wasn't even meant to be like that because your eyes are on the lookout now for gay innuendo but yeah yeah i know you're kind of key it's like yeah you're kind of looking out for this kind of stuff yeah you're always looking for balls yeah <laughs> i mean that's me every day but i you know i was trying to be self-conscious about that because I, I know there's this discussion around it but i was trying to be like go into this sort of open mind and, and kind of see like is it over the top or like is it just coincidental but you feel like this was pretty purposeful here like balls to eggs i <laughs> balls to eggs <laughs> uh, if you and I ever start a band, let's let's call it that. That's <laughs> good. Um, I don't know that one specifically. It could have just been coincidence, but when you're hypersensitive to it because you know the background of the movie, there mm-hmm. are some things that don't seem like a coincidence. That's for sure. We'll okay. we'll get to them. Okay, sounds good. 
Um, so Jesse's, you know, he's, he's new to this house and I think the town, um, but he's kicked off this like romantic kind of relationship with Lisa, who he gives a ride to the school every day. And also at school, he's in this kind of weird relationship with this guy named, uh, Grady, who's this jock. Uh, our introduction to Grady is they're playing baseball and Grady basically pulls this guy's pants down and they start like wrestling on the field, which that's pretty odd, right? <laughs> yeah, and Jesse's wearing a jock strap, so he's just basically his bare butt is out. Yeah, <laughs> is is that odd, or do you remember doing this in the eighties too? I don't know, man. Movies from this time period seem to portray the fact that jocks are a pretty common thing to wear, but I yeah. don't know anybody that wore a jock. Yeah, I can't recall anyone either. But I figured it was because I didn't hang out with a lot of athletes. But I don't know. Is it is it too late for us to start wearing those? Um, I mean, go for it if you want to. They don't seem comfortable. <laughs> I know, I know, but I, I feel like it's worth trying just to see. Give it a try. All right. Post a pic on our socials. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> uh, all right, so he's been having these dreams about Freddy, and in one of them he finds, he runs into Freddy in the basement of, the, of his house, and we have this interaction where Freddy tells him that he needs Jesse's body, and I think he says you've got the body, I've got the brains, and Jesse finds Freddy's gloves in the, in, in like the, the heater of the house. Yeah, correct. Right. Um, and so I, I think at this point we're kind of seeing that Freddy's intentions in this film are immediately different than what they were in their first film, right? Like he's not just murdering kids in their sleep. He's trying to like possess this person, I guess, right? Yeah, yep, and you you can interpret little snippets of these lines as you will, too, like, you've got the body, and I think at one point he says, I need you, Jesse, and he kind of rims Jesse's mouth with his claw. Oh, yeah, and and there was, um, I mean, like, there was some talk, like, where someone wanted, like, the claws to actually go into his mouth, right? Yeah, and his makeup, if, how Mark Patton tells it is that his makeup person was like, God, he needs more makeup. And then was like, don't let him put that claw in your mouth. Like, wow. you'll regret that. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah. So, and I think Robert England was kind of into it and saw the subtext and and was kind of into it. He viewed Freddy as a pedophile and somebody wow. who, I don't know. Yeah, he, he was in kind of into the sexuality take on it, it seems. Really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I feel like these lines work. Uh, I mean, yeah, it, it works on both levels. But I could also just seeing it being like straight up possession, because that's like what a demon would say. Right. You've got the body. Someone. I've got the brain. Just that's how you would foreshadow in a script that I'm trying to take over your body, and I need you. Yeah. Sure. Exactly. I could. I could totally see watching this movie and not picking up on some of this stuff. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I guess usually you would say like I need you, but like not in a gay way, just like in a gay way. <laughs> 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 I need you platonically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, some other things that have happened. Um, they say that the coach, Grady and Jesse say that the coach is into queer S&M bars downtown. Yeah, they drop He back. tells the boys to assume the position when he punishes them. Hmm. There's a decoration on the wall in Jesse's family's kitchen that looks a lot like balls and a dick. There's a sticker on the bus dashboard when Freddy is driving the bus in the opening scene that says body love. Oh, okay. And there's a handball tournament 
poster on the coach's wall. Did you say a hand to ball? Just handball. Oh, handball. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you uh, filled in the blanks there and added the two. <laughs> yeah, hint of balls. Um, okay, so th- these are all like little clues, you think? I think so, and you know, I think about half of those are could be attributed to the production designer being in on the the subtext. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. Wow. Good. Good eye catching all this stuff. Um, well, then, then we jumped to a scene which I thought was like one of the bigger um, signs here uh, is Jesse hasn't unpacked yet and he's got to go unpack his room and he breaks out into dancing to the song where I think the lyrics are like you're my candy man or something and it's a very suggestive dance and during which his girlfriend or his lady friend Lisa stops by and uh, that's that's a funny dancing did, did you enjoy that one that was pretty funny, and that's one scene that they really talk about a lot in the Screen Queen documentary. I think David Chaskin wrote this as a bit more silly, and Mark Patton kind of was like, oh, I got this, and took it to the <laughs> next level. And one of the reasons Mark was pissed at David Chaskin was he felt like Chaskin really threw him to the wolves. But Chaskin also had said over the years, like, Mark is the reason this movie is so gay. But really, yeah. it's kind of a team effort. Like... Mark did some things and took him to the next level that didn't help the cause of the movie being viewed as gay. Right. Um, not that that's right. a bad thing. And then now here we are in 2021, and it's it kind of comes out on the other end as a good thing. But yeah, you can see it wasn't right of Chaskin, obviously. It was very wrong to deny there was any gay subtext for decades and then only to admit it later and be blaming Mark the whole time. But sure. at the same time, you can see how some of the stuff that David Cheskin wrote was amplified either by the production designer or Mark's performance, or even mm-hmm. by Jack's shoulder not even getting what they were doing here. Did you read something, though, that, that I, I thought I saw Mark saying that David Cheskin, in the writing, it actually said, like, how to do this dance. Like, I mean, it sounds like you're saying he might have, like, improved this. But it, I, Yeah, I, that's kind of the impression I got, and... Honestly, it's kind of like one person's word against the other. Yeah. There was something in the script that said, and I meant to go find the script and read it, but I didn't have time, that he had like two straws up his nose like a walrus. And I think David Cheskin had written it more as silly, and Mark took it and did his thing, and and gosh, I sound horrible the way I'm saying it. It's like, Mark made it gay. Like, that's not right. But I think it was just kind of an unfortunate coincidence. Mark was trying to riff on like risky business in the Tom Cruise scene and yeah it all just added up sure it added up but it's also interesting because like we're watching it here in 2021 and like you don't want to like stereotype right and like we're kind of past all like those kind of things and so like I you know I want to watch this kind of like being like yeah you you can dance like however you want to dance it doesn't like have to be like a sign of your orientation or anything right Right, just because you're dancing around your room and closing a dresser drawer with your butt, it doesn't mean shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can't read Been into there. those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, we've all done that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 a fine balance, but uh, yeah, I, I guess eighties were a different time, and um, yeah, maybe this implied a lot more than uh, at that that time. Yeah. Um, um, and but, by the way, when Lisa walks in on this, it's uh, there's a sign on his door that says "No chicks allowed." Oh. Oh, man. <laughs> it really does add up after a while. Ah, oh, shit. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> All right. But she walks in, and while they're packing, they find Nancy from part one, her old journals in the room. 
and it basically talks about there's this dude Freddy who's coming up in dreams and has been killing people. So uh, there's another night um, where Jesse before you sne- go any further, they find yeah. that journal right next to a board game, and uh-huh. the board game is called Probe. Oh my god! Okay, <laughs> continue. How- how are you watching this so closely? <laughs> well, I mean, the documentaries point some of this stuff out, too. Oh, okay, okay. Damn, all right. So, yeah, some night later, uh, Jesse ends up sleepwalking or something, and he ends up in uh, a gay bar where his gym teacher finds him. And as punishment, his gym teacher takes him to his high school in the middle of the night and makes <laughs> Jesse run laps around the gym. Uh, after which he tells Jesse to go hit the showers. While Jesse's in the showers, though, the coach gets attacked by all these sporting goods, like tennis balls, basketballs, like just shooting out at him. And balls everywhere. Yeah, balls all over the place. <laughs> no eggs this time, though, right? No eggs, nope. Yeah, just the balls. And uh, these jump ropes kind of like attach onto his, uh, attach onto his arms and drag him into the shower and like kind of straps him against the wall and fr- in the steam all the steam uh that's coming from these showers we see freddy emerge and uh claw this guy to death and then it's revealed that it is jesse with the the claws that he found in the basement and uh he screams in horror and then we find out that the police find jesse like kind of roaming the streets naked and bring him back home uh, what would you think of this uh, first kind of Freddy attack and kill scene? It's a little silly, but I kind of liked it. I really just like the concept, to be honest, of Freddy possessing somebody. And of Jesse being in this position where he's like, I think that was me, but I don't know for sure. And I just woke up from this trance or dream with the claw on my hand. Mm-hmm. Like the psychological element of it? Yeah, I really like the psychological element of the the story as a whole. What do like you think too. of the scene? I, I mean, I agree. I, I like that part a lot. I think it's like really smart. Like uh, he, he like maybe in his head is seeing Freddy, but it's actually like him killing these people. So I, I, I love like what that opens up. I also thought like they kind of gave this whole uh, scene like a dreamlike sequence. Like it was, it was kind of, I don't, I don't know. Like I don't know if it was the music or um, kind of looked a little hazy and like mm-hmm. why is this kid at a high school at midnight like is this really happening and there's like a red light like in the background as well which kind of makes you wonder like is this real or a dream which I, I thought kind of like is it nicely plays up some of the elements of the first film as well so yeah I, I, I agree that it's very reminiscent of some of the dreams from the first one and I yep. think he's kind of like borderline sleepwalking so yeah exactly Right. I think it makes sense. It's cohesive, but also it's kind of misleading, but I think it's it's a true representation of what's going on. Sure. Yep. Also, I believe when he wakes up from this dream, I can't remember which dream it is, but he the there's this whole like side thing about going on where their house is really hot and there's a candle melting on his nightstand next to him that looks very phallic when he wakes up. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a weird shape. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, w- one thing about this kill, though. Um, did you think the sporting goods were weird? That was cheesy. That was, right? <laughs> yeah, it was very cheesy. Yeah, like the tennis racket breaking, the the balls kind of flying at him. That, that's weird. Yeah, you got like the sound, the cartoonish sounds of the strings on the racket like snapping. Like, yeah, toink. <laughs> That's strange, yeah. It's a little bit silly. 
Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, there's weird stuff happening at the house. Things are melting and looking like dicks. Uh, and we, we see these pet birds uh, that they have in a cage uh, randomly like just explode. And they think it's because of the food that they're feeding it. Um, there's a toaster that catches fire. Um, there's one night where he creeps up on his sleeping sister and has like the Freddy's glove on his hand and like maybe he's about to kill his sister but he doesn't and uh, I think he realizes like he can't afford to like start falling asleep because when he falls asleep he turns into Freddy and starts killing people uh what do you think of all these did all these like things make sense together they did to me I actually thought up until around this time or a little later of the movie everything's very cohesive it fits together and it makes sense you're saying the exploding birds made sense? <laughs> Come on, man. You got me. You got yeah. me. That part that part where the house is like heating up and the birds exploding, that is very silly. The toaster causes a fire at one point that's not even plugged in. All that's really stupid. I, I, disc- I wish I could discard that part of the movie. I don't like that part. But everything else in terms of what's going on with Jesse psychologically and Freddie and how they're intertwined, I dig it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. That, that part's really interesting. I think they were trying to play up like a haunted house vibe a little bit, but yeah, those was, was so weird and like unnecessary and re- like kind of ridiculous. Agreed. Um, okay, so then we come to the famous pool party. Uh, his girlfriend Lisa's throwing it. Um, they start making out, uh, but he imagines his tongue has grown long and monstrous, so he runs away, and we get the scene where he jumps his friend Grady on his bed at night and he tells Grady he needs Grady to stay awake and watch Jesse sleep and he says things like something is trying to get inside my body and Grady's like um there's this girl that wants you and you want to sleep with me um and he's like I'm in trouble and I need you to help me so I I think there's like some pretty heavy dialogue here which could probably be open for interpretation yeah, I think that's fair. And and just the events themselves on their surface. He's making out with this girl and then something suddenly doesn't feel right. Yes, Freddy's gigantic tongue comes out of him, but it could be interpreted as him wrestling with something inside of him that isn't quite feeling right. And he yeah. runs to a male friend's house uh, okay. immediately away from the situation. So yeah, I think there's some subtext there for sure. Okay, something to look into. Yeah, and then the conversation that him and Grady have. What did you think of him and Grady's friendship? It was so bizarre. Like, I thought Grady was kind of like a bully that would, like, uh, trash him him at school. But then, like, there's, uh, like, an alliance there where, like, yeah, he's gone to Grady for help. um, And, like, they sit together at lunch and stuff. So, yeah, it's it's kind of like a weird, like, kind of abuse, but also... um, like kind of endearing. I, I I didn't know what's like characterize that as. What, what did you think? I really liked it. I felt it was kind of a uh, not a complex relationship, but I liked the way it starts. It starts with the tussle, and then they're punished and have to stay late at school doing all these pushups and everything. And by the end of it, Jesse has says, "You got some sort of a problem against me?" And Grady just goes, "No, just killing time is all." <laughs> it was like, <laughs> oh, that's kind of like disarming. I guess, And yeah. then they just seem to be friends from that point on. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's really cool how, I don't know, maybe not an honest depiction of friendship, but we all had those friends where we like butt heads at the beginning and then the defenses get weird, worn down and and then you're just <laughs> friends. Part, partly because sometimes you go through some shit together and 
Sure. I thought this was like a really interesting portrayal of friendship. I really dug it. Got it. So for listeners, if you want to be friends with Brian, start by pulling his pants down. Pull my pants <laughs> down in public and we'll go from there. Yeah. We'll see how things go. <laughs> uh, from now on, I'll wear a jock every day just in case someone hears this and tries to pull it on me. Sounds good. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we should I... take another fake break where I actually for real go put a jock on. Yeah, I know. <laughs> then we finish this podcast with jocks on. <laughs> jock talk. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, I, 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 like it's borderline like bullying, but then, yeah, you're right. I guess they, uh, they hit it off, which I always thought like, you know, someone like that, like if that's how the relationship uh, kicks off, if the relationship kicks off, like you're not going to be friends with this guy, but, um, you, you think that's realistic though? Like you kind of start off on like a, uh, a more like adverse footing. You, you can kind of warm up to like a, a friendship. Yeah, sure. I didn't view it as bullying. It was just like kind of an argument that broke out over the baseball game. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because I think I that, like, maybe it's easier to do that if you look at Jesse as a gay character from the start of things, but I think to the eyes of everyone around him, he was just a, a handsome uh, new kid in school who Lisa, who seems like a popular girl, is attracted to and kind of wanting to get with, and he would only be seen as, like, competition to Grady to me. Oh, okay, okay. Got it. So they're kind of on the same level in a way. Yeah, but maybe I'm interpreting that. There's probably different ways to interpret that. Yeah, sure, sure. All right. And uh, and, and one other thing I want to jump back to, that, that tongue scene. Um, do you think that is paying tribute to like the first film? Is, isn't it like a tongue through the phone? I think it is because, yeah, there's no reason that Jess, that uh, Freddy should have such a gigantic tongue. It's not like it's hanging out of his mouth in every scene. But yeah. I think it's a bit of a callback, oh, no pun intended, to the telephone scene and the first okay. one. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, so Grady, unfortunately, falls asleep when he wasn't supposed to. And he wakes up to Jesse, who's in a lot of pain. And we see Freddy rip out of the inside of Jesse, which is kind of an interesting transformation. And then Freddy kills uh, Grady. Uh, you know, he puts him against the door and, like, uh, puts his uh, claws through him. And then uh, it flashes back and we see Jesse standing there covered in blood with Freddy's glove on and seeing Freddy in the mirror kind of taunting him. What did you think of this scene? I love this scene. This is my favorite scene in the movie. Really? Yeah, uh, I just think the transformation looks really good. I think they worked for like 11 hours on it or something. Wow. Um, let me find the name of the guy who specifically did this scene. It was Mark something, I feel like. Mark Showstrom did oh, the transformation okay. effects. And he went on to work on Dream Warriors, From Beyond, Evil Dead 2, Phantasm 2. But... I thought the effects were awesome. I thought the drama of it all worked really well. Grady's freaking out and can't get out of his room, and he's pounding on the door, screaming for his dad. I, I think it's powerful that Grady's kind of such a macho jock-type guy, and here he is, like, screaming for his dad to come help him. And then you get this eye in the back of Mark <laughs> Patton's throat, and it's just like, I don't quite know why, but it's showing that Je Freddy's inside of him, ready to come out. Yeah. I know. <laughs> that looks really good. And then when the transformation is finishing, you see Freddy just kind of like slough off Jesse's body. And it just looks really gross and real and good. Yeah. Yeah, it does. 
I agree. But, yeah, the, the the effects here are are so good, and I, I think it's like probably one of the best uh, scenes in the film from an effect perspective. Yeah, yeah, it's, it legit gave me chills this time. But but what did you think? You sound a little surprised. Uh, no, no, I, I agree. Like, I, I think this is a really well done scene. Cool to see that. And like, they took their time with like showing Freddy coming out. They didn't like kind of rush that at all. And like, yeah, you, it's kind of funny when you first like see the eye and like the back of his throat, but, um, it works. And like how his head like slowly pops out from his torso and breaks his body apart and he comes out and then, yeah, I, I feel like it's cool. Cause it still makes it feel a little psychological at the end. Cause, uh, after Grady's killed, it flashes over and you just see Jesse there covered in blood with the claws and, yeah, you think maybe this was all in his head still, right? Yeah, it's great. I, I love everything about this scene. I love okay. their friendship. I love the effects here. I love the drama of the death. And I love the psychological terror that Jesse's going through as he realizes what he's done. Yep, yep. Agreed. So it sounds like so far you're enjoying yourself? Yes. So far <laughs> I've got very little problems with this movie aside from the parakeet. Okay, cool. Aside from that, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm having an okay time too. I mean, I, I think some of the acting's a little shoddy and stuff, but otherwise, like, uh, I, I'm liking the direction they're going in. But cool. then, <laughs> following, <laughs> following this murder, uh, Jesse returns to that pool party, and he's covered in blood, and he's telling Lisa what's going on, and she is, you know, trying to calm him down. And he says, "Freddy's inside me. He's inside me, and he wants to take me again. He owns me." So he's like saying these kind of lines, which I'm sure uh, are, right. are you know pointing towards. You can uh, read into these. Exactly. Uh, Lisa doesn't want to believe it, but um, before she knows it, Freddie pops out of Jesse again. This time, though, it's like he's behind a couch, and so we don't see like some cool transformation. But this time, he uh, pops out, and he starts basically tearing up this pool party, and like throwing people into the water, and like things are lighting on fire, and he's like randomly killing. Uh, people running around. Um, this this was kind of like just a lot of nonsense, right? It is a lot of nonsense. Um, and I, this is a specific scene, as we mentioned, where I think a lot of the actors involved had trouble buying into what they were doing. And I think you can kind of see it. And especially even in the moments before the pool party where it's just between Lisa and Kruger, like there's supposed to be more drama there that's just not happening on screen like what in the dialogue and what should be happening internally just we don't see it on screen i think the acting isn't great here because they they don't buy into it i think the direction is bad and we haven't mentioned it yet but i think the editing throughout this whole movie is pretty bad before they move out into the pool party there's a bit of a battle between lisa and freddie and the editing in the scene is really bad it just like doesn't follow the motions so you come back to a scene and you're from a different angle and it's it's ugly it really is yeah and uh because yeah this this could have been a pretty intense scene where it's like him and her one-on-one but yeah the way it's portrayed it just kind of feels like a mess yeah and and there's some drama there too because it's him and her one-on-one but there's also jesse in there too and she's kind of trying to coax jesse out and it just falls flat right right um, I think what also gets really weird here is we see from her perspective that she's seeing Freddy Krueger, and up until this point, like maybe uh, it's in your head that like only Jesse has been seeing Freddy Krueger, and like the victims are seeing Jesse acting as Freddy Krueger. But this scene kind of uh, throws that out the window, and now we know everyone's seeing Freddy Krueger. Is that fair? 
Yeah, that's a good point. And it would have been an interesting take to see everyone else seeing Jesse. I know, right? Feels yeah. like a missed opportunity. It does, because I, I think here they're kind of coming out and saying Freddy Krueger is in the real world now and everyone can see him and he's going around hanging out at pool parties and killing teenagers. Because um, really, Freddy says right up front, you've got the body, I've got the mind. But in this, it's really Freddy's body then. He becomes Freddy's body. So <laughs> exactly. they kind of throw that out the window. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so yeah, they, I, I feel like the movie takes a huge miss here. And you're right, like editing... Um, some big missed opportunities here. And then just the whole setting of like a pool party and like Freddy running around is kind of weird. Um, and you've got this I, random do-gooder that approaches Freddy and oh. asks, tries to talk sense into him. God, yeah. And what does Freddy say? Like, you can go fuck yourself or something? <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Just really weird. I, I thought there was one really cool shot here, though, with Freddy with like the fire behind him and like raising his hands and like saying, you're all my children now. That, I thought that like it was a standalone uh, decent shot. What, what did you think? Yeah, sure. That's not bad. I hadn't really thought to take that out of the context of the shittiness of that whole pool <laughs> yeah. scene. But sure, I think that little thing by itself could be cool. Put yeah. it in some other other movie or other script. Yeah. And that, that <laughs> could shine. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's kind of hard to ignore everything else that's going on around this. Also, when he like emerges onto the scene of the pool party, he jumps out of the ground. Like, oh yeah, what? Why? I know. It goes like really quiet, and then like he suddenly like, jumps out. He like bursts out of the pavement or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, he like crashes through the screen door, and he just like goes invisible. And then even his exit from the scene, he kind of like just walks into a fence and disappears in like a ball of flames. Very just, odd. Yeah, odd, odd transitions. Um, and I, th- I think it only gets worse from here. So she she uh, <laughs> she decides to uh, ch- yeah chase Freddy or track Freddy down. So Lisa runs out uh, to the factory where I think Freddy used to work and where he was burned uh, back in like you know over twenty thirty years ago. And there's some really bizarre stuff happening at this factory. They're like these dogs with human faces, like a deranged cat that that's around there. And she imagines like some ants that are crawling around her wound. I think they were trying to like set this up almost as like kind of a dream uh, sequence. What, what, what was going on here? Yeah, kind of. But there's no logic as to why, because you're not in a dream anymore. Freddy's in the real world. So right. why the factory would be guarded by these dogs with baby faces and this giant rat that i think eats a cat the editing around the giant rat scene is really really bad like i know see yeah. movie bad it's it's embarrassing i know you can't like put it together at all it doesn't make any sense what's going on there no no and that might partially be to hide the effects which were really bad oh um, sure i think <laughs> one of the dudes working on this said he was working on aliens at the same time so he just couldn't give it his all oh really wow interesting connection yeah. Also, you know, the scene where Freddy emerges from Jesse is a lot like a chestburster scene from Aliens. So, Oh, yeah. Good point. All of our movies yep. are kind of connected. And uh, Big Turkey pointed out that there was someone named Burke in both Candyman and Aliens. So, Oh, wow. Good all catch. All our movies are kind of tied together. They mention Aliens and Scream 2. Damn. Now we just have to find a way to tie Gremlins 2 to some of these movies because that's what we're doing next. No, that, that's a great coincidence. Um so finally, in, in this factory, she does run into Freddy and confronts him, and she tries to appeal to Jesse, who she thinks is inside Freddy, and to do so, she kisses Freddy, which uh, makes him st- uh, makes him uh, stop trying to kill her, and the place kind of lights up on fire, 
and these flames kind of spread everywhere and Freddy melts, leaving Jesse behind. Again, I, I thought the effects here were pretty decent. Did, did, did you think so? Yeah, I think all the effects in the movie are pretty pretty good. Most yeah. of them. Well, did, did you care for like the banter or like the, the back and forth, the drama, the conversation, dialogue here? No, I think on paper it really could have worked, but this was another thing where it just seemed like they were no longer into the movie and their performances weren't very good and the direction wasn't good and the editing wasn't good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did you agree? I agreed. I, I agree, yeah, yeah. Bad performance, bad uh, editing, and like I just like I didn't get this at all. Yeah. So um, finally... Oh, go ahead. Actually, I, I just want to correct myself for saying that effects were mostly good through the whole movie. There are some glaring, horrible things, like we mentioned, with the giant rats and the baby dogs, but yeah. most of the Freddy effects looks, look pretty good. Sure, yeah, they, pick, they, they, they I feel like they picked and choose uh, which ones uh, they would focus on, and then they kind of dropped the ball on the rest of them. Also, back at the at Lisa's house, she had stabbed Freddy, and it didn't really do anything. Mm-hmm. But in this scene, she says, I love you to him. And after she says that, his stab wound starts to bleed. Yeah, what do you think that was about? Well, David Chaskin said something in the documentary, Scre- Scream Queen, that made me think maybe his original script was intended to mean like the love of a good woman could turn you straight. Oh. And he said that the love of a good woman could turn you straight is almost a direct quote from him. That's not me just saying that. Yeah. Which is an yeah. unfortunate way for the movie to end. Like, shit. You yeah. could interpret that as the moral. Like, Jesse's yeah. wrestling with Freddy, overtaking him. If Freddy is the symbol for his sexuality and his gayness coming through. A then Lisa defeats yeah. that by kissing him and, like, saying I love you so that the love of a woman can cure. Yeah. You know, David Chaskin even said originally he thought it was something that would be shown at, like, um, what are those called? The camps where they try to, oh, conversion camps. Oh, sure, sure. I don't know if he meant that he thought that that, he agreed with that point of view, but yeah, he, I think that was his counter to being, to people thinking it was championing gayness that, he actually viewed it as a like homophobe, more homophobic. Yeah, exactly. Because that that ends up being uh, the narrative. Then is like uh, she she kind of saves him by by uh, give, yeah kissing him and stuff. That, but then you know the, the only thing that kind of counters that is that at the pool scene when they're in the cabana or whatever, uh, they are making out and like she, they're they're getting pretty hot and heavy and then like that that tongue pops out. So like why would that have been different than this scene here? I think the difference was the I love you, like, oh. and a way to make it more heartwarming and true, like not just lust or sex, but like the yeah. love of a good woman. Yeah, yeah. But but yeah, then you're right. Then it is like kind of pretty homophobic. Then that's, right, that's unfortunate if that's, if that's how it was intended to be read. Right, yeah, exactly. Pretty problematic. Yep. Um, so yeah. The, the or movie... you could read it as like a good friend supporting you in this journey and... <laughs> empowering you through their support to uh, yeah to de- to defeat it's complicated it's 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 kind of muddy waters it really is it really is and that's what makes me really hesitant to uh say that they were trying to go into that area because if 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 that was the case then yeah it, it does come out as like saying you need this woman to come and like save you like and save you from like these dark ideas or whatever right like but, kiss the gay out of you yeah exactly exactly which is uh yeah not uh, that's kind of messed up Right. 
Um, but then, yeah, the, the movie ends really strangely, and um, none, none of this makes sense, because, like, uh, we see Jesse back home, he's getting on the bus to go to school, and Lisa's there, and he kisses her and says, I can't believe it's all over, but then the bus speeds up, and it's going too fast, and Freddy's claws pop out of Lisa's friends, and the movie ends. Um so it's, it's I, I don't know, is it like the first one where this is like a dream sequence again, or what, what was going on here? I think it's kind of like the first one in that you don't know if the ending is a dream or if the if it's the way it actually ended. Mm. And dude, the editing again was so, it wasn't really even the editing, it was just the way they executed the effect, but when Freddy's hand pops out of that girl's shirt, it's clearly two like shots spliced together and you can oh. see the cut. You can see the cut. Yeah, it's so obvious. It looks really bad. <laughs> it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They messed up that transition so bad. <laughs> they did. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. It doesn't bother you that these movies end with like such like um, like no kind of like clarity on like well, what what the hell happened. Um, it's a bit. I don't know. Sometimes with movies like this, it's just kind of fun for them to end like that. But it is a bit bothersome. At the same time, yeah. it is. Yeah, I mean that, that really bugged me about the first one because I, I feel like there's this whole strategy to like get him at the end, and then we don't know because it ends on this dream. So we can, this like kind of like dreamy dream type of nightmare or whatever. And, then and theoretically, he, he could still haunt his dreams even though he had defeated him from taking over his body. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, he could still be in there uh, for sure, and, and and doing this. And so like, uh, we don't know what happened in real life, really. Um, but we do know that like a bunch of people were killed. Like, wh- wh- do you have any idea like what the body count even was in this movie? Boy, I don't really know. The only significant characters that died were the coach and Grady. But then I don't know how many people died at the pool party. Right. Yeah, that part was really weird. Yeah. Um, my first discussion question for you is, what the fuck, man? <laughs> <laughs> what was this film? <laughs> well, man, you were with it for a while though, right? Uh, yeah, I'll give it to you. I mean, actually watching it, I was pretty bored the whole time, but, uh, reviewing it and like kind of watching it again, uh, I, I agree with you. I think up to Grady's kill, like, uh, it was pretty decent and I I like the fact that it was like possession based and more psychological, but then it totally just dives into like shit territory when it goes into the pool scene and onwards, right? Yeah. The last 20 to 30 minutes is pretty unfortunate. And partly because Jesse's barely involved after that, he switches to Freddie and it's, the movie shifts, and I think some of this, it sounds like, may have been Wes Craven's input to make things more about Lisa. Oh, yeah. But mm-hmm. Lisa ends up taking a traditional final girl role to an extent, and she also is a bit more of a hero and a masculine role as well because she saves Jesse. Yeah. But Jesse, your main character through the whole film, is basically gone for the last 20 minutes. He's almost not present for the climax, right. really. Right. Which may be the nature of a possession film to an extent, but I just feel like the script is weak in that specific area of the film That with that structure. It's mm-hmm. a difficult thing to pull off and Jack Shoulder's direction and the fact that the actors seem to really not be buying into what they were doing anymore at this point of the movie. It just really <laughs> sucked any chance of that third act succeeding right yeah. out. Like... The acting is bad, the editing is bad, the direction is bad, and while the script isn't horrible, it's taking a risk by sucking the main character right out of the story for the climax. Sure, yeah, So it's just like a pylon of things that are just not working. 
Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, you know, that's what interesting. Cause I, I, f- I feel like I've seen Jack, or yeah, Jesse's character referred to as like the final, uh, like the the kind of scream queen in this one, right? Like the first like male scream queen, maybe. Right, like the first final boy. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, like what we just described, he's not really like the final character, is he? It's it comes down to uh, Lisa. Yeah, and the final, I'd say final moments, but really like third act of the movie, really Lisa's taken over the the final girl role, so. It kind of sucks. I mean, the movie, it's so good up to a point when Jesse's front and center, and then it kind of robs him. It's like it didn't have the balls to go through with what it started. Like, it may have been a better movie if he was truly the final boy. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like, if it was like a battle of between him and Freddy at the end or something. Yeah, yeah. And that's hard to do. I mean, hard to do and keep Jesse present as jesse and not as freddy but i don't know how you would have done it it's kind of like the script boxes itself into a corner to an extent because i love the setup i love jesse being possessed by freddy and fighting it and even if it is a well i guess it's problematic if it's a parallel for homosexuality there's probably ways to do it sure better more in a better way yeah yeah Yeah. i'd almost want to see this movie remade is that crazy? Uh, yeah, actually, if it was remade, I, I think they could, in like modern times it could be done a lot better. Yeah, get it right and own it for what it is. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Versus like kind of hiding behind uh, uh, some scripts or whatever. Did you feel like any of the characters in this movie had any agency? Hmm. I yeah, sure. I feel like they did. I mean, Mark was kind of along for the ride, which David Chaskin says what that opening scene on the bus was metaphorical because Freddie was going to take jesse for a ride the whole movie oh interesting um so he was kind of along for the ride and could couldn't necessarily do too much but lisa then finds something in the journal about how nancy fights back because she's not afraid anymore and that shows that they can fight back and they do have agency because lisa takes things into her own hands but i mean jesse really loses his agency essentially it's up to someone else to save him yeah, I never feel like he was doing anything. And I, I think that was, like, interesting that they had this male character who, like, couldn't really fight this guy at all. And just kind of, like, I, I thought he gave in, like, pretty easily. And I know he was, like, trying to stay awake, uh, whatever. But I, I don't feel like he ever, like, kind of devised a real strategy or game plan to go after Freddy. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess you're right. Like, Lisa's probably the closest one who, um, yeah, did, you know, try to implement, like, something that, that was going to help. Yeah. That, that, that's a good point. Um, so yeah, the third act, I mean, I, I think universally people should for, uh, hopefully agree that like it's, it's, it's terrible, but even before that, like, uh, yeah, the, the beginning is definitely better, but there's a lot of like randomness, like with the stuff with the house that we talked about and like, were you bought into the characters at all? I was, I was really on board with all the characters really. I thought really? the performances were really good. Really? I, I didn't think any of these relationships made sense. Uh, Jesse to, to, like, his family. Like, his family were, like, kind of, uh, yeah, I didn't feel like they were, like, built out really well. Um, the, his relationship with Lisa kind of, like, comes out of nowhere. Like, I, I thought they were just friends, and then suddenly they've, like, become this, like, romantic relationship. But he's, like, this really shy, awkward guy. And then the Grady thing, like, uh, this kid was, like, depanting you in front of, like, a bunch of people. And are you, you guys are, might, might be kind of friends or something, and you show up in his bedroom late at night. So I, it just, it, it, it all seemed, like, pretty confusing to me. I thought they connected the dots decently of him and Grady's troubled beginnings turning into a friendship with the long scenes of them being punished together. 
There's another scene too where he like almost opens up to Grady about what's going on, but decides not to. Like they cut back and forth to him and Grady enough that they, I feel like they're kind of holding their hands through that friendship developing. And him and Lisa, I think it's just kind of a complex thing. Like he views her as a friend maybe, or doesn't know how he sees her. And you do have Lisa's friend at the beginning asking her if she's hooking up with Jesse yet. So it's implied that there might be something romantic there. Um, his family, sure, they're just kind of stereotypical parents. The dad thinks he's on drugs. But I thought that the relationships were fairly authentic, and I, I liked them. They were a little unusual for what you typically see on screen, but I thought in a good way. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, that's interesting. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what it was for you. Uh, it, it, like, I mean, maybe for me it came down to the acting, and I, I just feel like people were acting very unnaturally and in not very predictable or natural, uh, normal ways. Did, did you feel like the acting was okay? I thought the acting was good until the third act. <laughs> I mean, really, it's mostly Mark Patton. I thought his acting was really good. Yeah. Um, the woman who plays Lisa, Kim Myers, I th- I'd never saw a problem with her for the first two acts, but by the third act, she wasn't performing very well. And frankly, I don't think Robert England was performing very well in the third act. I think based on, maybe I was looking at it through the lens of having just watched some of the documentaries and having people say they weren't really feeling very on board with some of the stuff they were doing. I just interpreted that third act as everyone's hearts not really being in it. Yeah, hearts not being into it. And uh, I don't think the script really gave them the uh, room to like give a strong performance in that third act. I don't um, know, man. I feel like some some of the stuff was there in the script with the dialogue but the direction was really poor at this part, too. Like, Jesse, I know you're in there. Uh, I love you. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a little stereotypical, but yeah, it it, it works. I guess, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Maybe if their heart was in it, it could, they could have sold me on it more, but I just felt like it felt like really flat. Yeah, it did. It, I, I agree with you. It totally fell flat. I think our disagreement is you think it's the script and I think it's the direction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and like the the setting of like that last scene that didn't make a lot of sense because um, yeah they they should have been in the real world but suddenly like the factory's like this haunted weird like magical place. That was a real stupid idea. I mean, the <laughs> that doesn't add enough to it to justify the expense to try to hastily make these creations. Like just rip that out of the script. <laughs> like, there's yeah. no reason. Seriously, yeah, it I makes no like- sense with anything else that happened in the movie. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think there are a few things that should have been ripped out and could have made this a stronger film. Yeah. Um, I know we're over time, but one last question for you. So I get the impression, based on all the things you caught, that uh, you do think there was an agenda here, and they are trying to say that this guy was someone who was like struggling with uh, internal feelings, and at the end the cure was um, a woman's love. That is unfortunately the way I interpret both the premise and the ending um mm-hmm. and david chaskin said that there was gay subtext and he said and i would encourage people to go watch both never sleep again and scream queen i think scream queens on shutter and never sleep again's on youtube but he says at a moment that and whether he's just playing devil's advocate or what but he does say like the love of a good woman i don't know what his exact words are but he says yeah. the love of a good woman could like turn you straight he says this like 25 years later yeah yep mm, yeah so, yeah 
it's hard to uh, ignore that. I mean, it just seems to really it co- be cohesive with that ending. It, it it makes sense, unfortunately. Yeah, right, right. Shoot, I was, I was prepared to kind of just say this is all like coincidental and people looking into it and uh, kind of stereotyping. But I, I think all the points you brought up and then, yeah, if he, if, if he said that, then yeah, that's kind of hard to deny then. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't. And it's one thing to like look at all the points on paper, like some of the stuff I brought up, like the probe game and things looking like balls. But yeah, I while I on paper, I'm like, yeah, okay, I see it now. I still see how someone could sit and watch the entire movie or even make the movie and not see those things. Like, don't feel stupid if you saw this movie and didn't catch any of that. But then some people probably watched it and are like, how could you not think that? So, yeah. You know, I, I, yeah, I feel like I watched it, I caught it, but then I also was like, you know, d- uh, don't jump to conclusions or don't like use stereotypes and that kind of thing. And, like, right, it's overblown. It the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, da- damn, that's uh, it's pretty overwhelming, I guess. Yeah, Great. I think so. Okay. Well, uh, anything else you want to call it or do you want to jump to the rating? I think we can jump to the rating. All right. Well, how many eyes in the back of someone's throat would you give this one? I think on my Patreon episode, I gave this, I can't remember if I rated things, but previously I had this rated at a four eyes in the back of the throat. Yeah. I was too generous, but I still give this movie a 3.5. Wow. I think I love the setup. I do think the first two thirds of the movie are legit aside from a few really stupid things that are just kind of laughable, like the parakeet. But it really, like, if it had followed through and just kept going and trucking and then I'd been pleased with it, it could have been, like, 4.5. But I got to drop a whole star. Because of the pool scene and everything that happens after that, just bad. Poorly executed in general. And I'll be honest, there's probably a little bit of nostalgia and general love for the franchise baked into that 3.5. I don't think... Hmm... I don't know. It's tough, man. I think it'd be hard for me to agree with anyone saying that the first two-thirds of the movie are lower than a three, because I think they're legitimately good. Okay, you think the first uh, two-thirds are legitimately good? Yeah. Okay, yeah. got it. But uh, <laughs> let's let's get to yours. How many eyeballs okay. in the back of the throat? Uh, man, and, and you saw the fedora, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck! I never noticed that. Two point five. Yeah. No. Wait. Let me change my view. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give it to you. The two, the first two thirds are better than the last third, so I, I'm not gonna counter that. But I still think this is a terrible film. Uh, I would only give this one and a half uh, eyes in the Ooh. back of someone's throat. <laughs> Because I felt like the narrative here wasn't cohesive. I mean, I, th- I thought the great parts of the first one uh, were like some of the cool kills and the gore and like you had some really like imaginative kind of things happening. Um, but I thought these characters were somehow were even less interesting than the first one and not like acted very well. And um, I, I thought the only thing that was like kind of interesting about this one is that they took it into like that psychological possession angle. But then even that like kind of drops out like two thirds into it. So it was hard to like find a lot of other things to give props on this. I mean, uh, those first kills were cool and like decent effects, but nowhere near like the level of gore that I kind of appreciated with the first one. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't, I couldn't find too much to like love about this one. I will say that the violence and the gore, specifically pertaining to the kills of both Grady and the coach, 
are pretty underwhelming. The right. kills themselves aren't great. I like the setup of the first kill in the shower. Like it's just kind of eerie and weird, um, and the dreamlikeness of it all. But I and I like the transformation and the Grady kill. But the kills themselves not that great. Yeah, a little so underwhelming. I'll, I'll, I'll give that to you. Especially when you can sit in the first one, like the body bag at, at like school, and like the uh, the big bloody scene in the bedroom. Like you didn't have anything like that in this one. Man, that body bag at the school, so good. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I kind of, I really missed that in, in this one. Yeah, you gave that movie a two, by the way. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> After watching this one, I'm like, ah, shit. Maybe I should have given that one like a two and a half or something at least. Well, uh, man, would you be angry if we tried another one of these and we did? Dream Warriors at some point, the third installment. No, man, I, I'm in it to watch the whole franchise and ultimately try to convince you that this is the shittiest franchise. <laughs> if there's any movie in the franchise that you might like, yeah. I had hopes for this one. Okay, I moved on. Okay. Dream Warriors <laughs> is the last chance to me for you to like one of these films. Okay, all right, cool, cool. Fuck, you'll probably like the remake. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> That's the one I'll gravitate towards. <laughs> Oh, Jackie man. Earl right. Haley, the guy's name just came to me. Oh, oh, the guy, uh, he plays... Who plays Freddy in the remake. Oh, okay, okay, cool. And by the way, David Miller was the guy who did the makeup for Freddy in the first movie. Okay, cool. That was nice. another name I was trying to think of earlier that and now I have. Nice, nice. Glad it all came back to you. Yeah, man, I mean, I could see... I can see a low rating for this movie. Part of it, I know is nostalgia and love in general for the franchise. But I do really, I think technically on pretty much every aspect of filmmaking, the first two thirds of the movie are pretty good. There's there's some missteps for sure, but yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I, I almost feel like if I can take all my emotions out of it, I'd give this movie a three, but I'm giving it a three and a half. With emotions, yeah. Uh, I, I thought you would be harsher because I know you've like talked about the idea of like, um, concept follow through where like you introduce elements and like you deliver on them later in the film and I, I just feel like there were a lot of things brought up here like yeah the, the house and like the weird things happening in the house uh, there's a whole thing about like him talking about his car um, and like that stuff like just doesn't like go anywhere uh, and yeah there's just some like really inconsistent stuff that like isn't really addressed or just kind of like forgotten about in the writing and uh, that, that didn't seem to bother you too much no, I mean, the house stuff is a weak point, but I don't think it took out that much screen time. Yeah, okay. All right. And it was, like, laughable enough that it, it added to the charm. Like, the parakeet scene is stupid, but yeah. I don't necessarily think it takes away from the movie. What about the overall premise? Like, what the hell was Freddy trying to do? Like, this whole thing, his game was, let me possess this guy and then go hang out in this factory by myself. Is that kind of his angle here? I think he retreated to the factory because Lisa's dad shot at him with a <laughs> shotgun. Is that, I mean, what, is he, he can't take a bullet? Is that, is that what we're thinking? I don't know. Maybe he doesn't understand the rules if he possesses somebody and, and overtakes their body. It, I mean, granted, it gets dicey. Yeah, yeah. The rules I, yeah, I, are weird. The rules are weird, yeah. I mean, this but is the new territory. But the rules are weird in the first one. Whenever you make anything this outlandish, yeah, I don't. I think it's almost unfair to demand that the filmmakers stick to the rules because the rules are so. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. I think if you set up rules in a movie, you should stick to them, even if they're outlandish rules. But they're so outlandish that it's hard to define the boundaries of the rules. Sure, that's Man. true. Yeah, 
I, yeah, and I, I think that's what with this whole franchise, right? I mean, like first you're in dreams, and now you're in like reality, and so yeah, you can't really play by the rules. But um, what is life if not like a series of rules, and us kind of like creating stories out of like how we subscribe to these rules? Huh? Deep, right? <laughs> I don't know whether to put that on your tombstone or. <laughs> Oh man, there was a quote earlier that I really wanted to remember. It was something about balls, yeah. ball, ball, balls and eggs, balls and eggs. <laughs> it wasn't balls and eggs. I, I can't remember. All right, yeah. I'll yeah. remember when I listen back to it. All right, <laughs> but yeah, I, I hear you. Like, yeah, you can't you can't hold them to any uh, thing hard and faster because we're in like such an undefined space. But I, I guess what I would have liked to know better is like what Freddy's end game was here. Because he's at a pool party, there are a bunch of people there. You think he's gonna kill everyone, but a dad comes out with a shotgun and that like scares him away. Like really, that's that's like the as far as he got with this plan. Right, right, yeah. I don't know. Maybe he didn't yeah. think it through. Right, <laughs> didn't plan on that guy with the shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. This has been a, a long one, but anything else you want to add? I just want to say. I think this is maybe our longest episode on a single movie that we've ever done. I think so. Yeah, we've had a new uh, landmark here. That's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, it's fun fun to go long once in a while. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll have, we'll end on a gay innuendo. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> this is a good long one. It's pretty hard. Long. It was a bit of a throbbing episode as well. Yeah. <laughs> kind of sweaty. Yep, yep. They're definitely uh yeah. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> that is going to wrap up our discussion on A Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy's Revenge. Which, what the hell is he getting revenge on? Huh. Good question. Yeah, another thing, Luke, where I, I feel like there's uh, maybe something someone forgot to circle back on. But if you enjoy this episode, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We always love the feedback, and I guess we just hit 200 reviews, so thank you so much, everyone, who's left a review for us. We really appreciate that. If you want to join our discussion, we have a social link on horrormovieclub.com or you can shoot us an email at podcast at horrormovieclub.com. We'll be announcing next movie on Facebook and Twitter in case you want to watch it before the next episode. We also have a Discord server where we're chatting up uh, horror films with some other listeners as well. So you can join that and find that link on our website. Our logo is by MMA Pop Art, so check it out on Etsy.com. And until next time... If you see Brian and he's walking around kind of funny, uh, I guess we'll know he's just wearing a jock strap. So give him the benefit of a doubt there. Pull these pants down so I can change into some more comfortable underwear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Next time, man. Next podcast, you're now going to be sitting here pretty comfortable. <laughs> I look forward to it. Sounds good.